You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on November 3rd, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of History of Science and Technology Q&A. And I'm happy to try and answer questions about either history of science and technology in times where I've personally been involved or from distant past where I might have researched certain areas of history and be able to talk about them. So we have a number of questions saved up from previous times. Uh, gosh, there's one here from Binary saying, what sort of math was ancient India up to? I don't know all those details. I will say a few things about the history of, of for example, Indian mathematics, some extent also Chinese mathematics, but particularly Indian mathematics. Um, one of the challenges in history from that part of the world is, well, in history, Greek, um, Roman, those kinds of periods, things got dated. You kind of know this was in the, you know, the, the system of dates often, at least in the Roman Empire, was, you know, it tended to be the nth year of so-and-so's, of emperor so-and-so's reign or whatever. That was so-called regnal dates were the usual way of stating dates for things. And eventually we're going to have those in Wolfram Alpha. We still don't quite have those yet. But um, uh, things, you know, a lot of things got dated. So you know when they're from. Uh, it tended to be the case in Indian traditions that there would be some document, some some uh, some some thing, not not really document because the the original documents are never preserved. There are always copies of copies of copies, but there will be some uh, you know ushpanipad um, or whatever thing or whatever it is which had been passed down through many generations, but it didn't have it didn't come with a date, so you don't really know when it was from. So that's one of the challenges is and and it could be off by five hundred years sometimes. Um, Another thing is that it's always a challenge to take a modern version of some set of ideas and try and connect them with a much older, quite different sort of paradigmatic framework and quite different presentational framework in which those ideas were given in the past. So for example, I was looking at something recently. One of the things that was done in ancient India uh, is the development of a kind of systematic grammar for Sanskrit. Um, and there's a person called Panini who uh, developed such a grammar. And I thought, I'm curious to what extent people sort of say, this is a grammar that looks like the modern sort of production rule grammars that we know originated around 1956 for both generative grammar for human languages and grammars for computer languages. I'm curious how similar what Panini wrote for his grammar for Sanskrit was to those production rule grammars. So I fairly recently went back and looked at some of this and it's really hard to interpret because the grammar is written out as essentially a series of aphorisms. 
Okay, well, that's not that different from a production rule, but often they're given as things where they are an example, like verbs work this way. Now that's sort of like the production rules we have, where there are kind of pattern variables in the production rule, but it sort of isn't quite like that because it says verbs work this way and it could be this or this or this. And you kind of can infer from that, that the this or this or this, that there's a, a piece that's fixed and a piece that changes. And so that's kind of the pattern variable, but you're starting to then have to make inferences about what kind of the, the cognitive structure that was being described was, uh, and you know how does that relate to the modern version of production rules? What's the essential aspect of production rules for a modern grammar? How did it compare to, to what was being done there? Now, it's my impression that I, I personally tried to, to understand some of this, like for, for example, the Fibonacci series. So the origin that we kind of have well nailed down for that is from Leonardo Fibonacci in around 12, uh, 1202, maybe something like that, uh, where you know Fibonacci was a was a person in I guess Venice primarily was it Pisa I forget somewhere somewhere in Italy um, who um, uh, oh it's Pisa actually now that I think about it um, he um, um, one of his big achievements was to bring Hindu Arabic numerals to the West. Before that time, you know, you wrote down a number, it was written down typically in Roman numerals. What Leonardo Fibonacci did was to say, uh, you know, Hindu Arabic numerals are really a better way to do this. He wrote a book called Liber Abaci, the book of the abacus. And what he's probably most famous for today was at the very end of that book is this kind of word problem about rabbits. And the word problem about rabbits generates the Fibonacci series, one, one, two, three, you know, the series that says the nth value is the sum of the n minus one value plus the n minus second value. And he had a word problem version of that about rabbits and different seasons and, and reproducing rabbits and so on. But in any case, the, so that's the origin that we know is Fibonacci, Libra Abaci, the Libra Abaci book. It's well dated. It, it's kind of been passed down. We kind of know how it originated. But the Fibonacci series is something which, you know, I, I don't know, I think uh, if, if the Fibonacci series hadn't been a known thing, I would have discovered it in my life at least 10 times because it's something that kind of naturally shows up in lots of kinds of problems. And it also naturally showed up in essentially mathematics that was done in ancient India. And the... Um, in particular, it showed up in the study of prosody. That is the study of kind of how you, uh, when you create a, a piece of sort of, um, well, musical poet poetry that you set to music, so to speak, there's the question of how you kind of scan the poetry. So for example, I don't know for the, for the Indian case, but in the case of, um, uh, of Greek, for example, or, or Latin, there are in Greek, there are things like, you know, iambic pentameters and things which are, uh, you know, the pentameter means the five feet in the meter, and it'll be, you know, long, short, short, or something like that um, will be, there'll be a bunch of long, short, short, long, short, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, things that go in a particular line of a poem, just like, I don't know, in, in English, limericks or something, have a particular way of going, of, of being structured um, in that way, I think. 
But in any case, and it, it was at least I know for Latin and Greek, it was a kind of a, a thing that was done was to have a certain rhythm of the poetry that was based on where are their long vowels, where are their short vowels, and so on. I guess the same thing was done in, in probably in Sanskrit. Um, and uh, so the question was asked, well, what are how many possible forms of the long, short, short, long, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are there? And the answer to that is, is Fibonacci numbers. And that was something that apparently was, was looked at in kind of ancient times in, in India. Again, I haven't looked at that source material. And it, it's often challenging to, to know, you know, somebody might say, in that particular case, it's probably quite easy to decode. It probably says, you know, the number of possible poems is given by, and that'll probably have a word description of something where maybe it gives the recursive formula. I don't know exactly how it works. Maybe it gives examples of the numbers. I'm not sure again how it, exactly how it works, but that's probably a fairly easy one to kind of pick out of kind of the ancient uh, works and see, yes, it really is something just like modern Fibonacci. Um, I, I would say, you know, the effort to figure out did, did something get figured out at a certain time in history? And can you tell? You know, I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, uh, visiting the uh, Leibniz archive. You know, Leibniz was a person who had many things to say about kind of the, the early ideas of computation in the late 1600s. And he had this idea of the characteristica universalis, this kind of universal language for representing things sort of symbolically. And so my kind of uh, slightly joke uh, statement was, let me see if I can look through his manuscripts and see if there's a Turing machine in there. And uh, just as a footnote to this, you know, Leibniz was a person who had um, written many, uh, uh, he was a bit of a disorganized writer. You know, he discovered many interesting things among them, pieces of calculus, invented the integral sign, lots of kinds of things like that. Um, he also had a lot of ideas about logic and knowledge, and he kind of would have done Wolfram Alpha probably if he'd been 300 years later and had the technology to do it. But Leibniz was a bit disorganized in terms of his, um, uh, um, his way of um, um, presenting things. And um, he, uh, uh, um, he was um, um, the, uh, uh, and so, uh, unlike some other sort of um, well-known scientists, philosophers or whatever of old who had very systematic books that they presented things in, Leibniz had, it was much less organized. But anyway, this question of, could I find a Turing machine in the works of Leibniz, some kind of idealization of computation? It's a challenging thing. I think the answer is no, it's not there. But it's hard to know that for sure, because his explanations were not that clear. His, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, he has weird little sketches in the margin and he has all kinds of things where it's written rather obscurely. And did he have the idea or not have the idea? Well, I don't think he had that specific idea. Um, it's, you know, Leibniz himself, I, I would say that his, his reputation, um, uh, you know, Voltaire, I think, kind of made fun of Leibniz and talked about him having talked about, you know, what did he call him, doctor? What was the name? I forget. Um, uh, sort of uh, really emphasized Leibniz as the world is the best of all possible worlds type thing, which I'm not sure was quite 
what he really meant in his kind of philosophical description. I mean, I, I realized recently with Leibniz, just to give a sense of the difficulty of projecting backwards from modern understanding to what people thought in the past. Leibniz was very big on this idea that the world, somehow the world is made of monads. Uh, you know, things like, I don't know, some modern functional programming languages have picked up the word monad just as a, um, uh, as, a, a as something a little bit, as a rather different kind of thing. But Leibniz had this idea of a monad. And for years, I've been trying to figure out what the heck is a Leibniz monad? Because one of the things that uh, he would talk about how sort of the world is made up of monads and all that matters is kind of the relative positions of monads and so on. And the key thing that just had me totally confused was that, as I understand it from the translations that I've seen of Leibniz, he describes monads as each monad has a consciousness. Well, by the time we're talking about that, it's like, I don't know what on earth that means. We're talking about sort of some kind of atoms in space, atoms of space, maybe that's somewhat similar to what we've been doing in our physics project, but they have each have a consciousness. It's like help, that's far away from what I understand about how things work. But what I realized recently is when he said that, and I need to go back and look at the original Latin and see whether the translation was what confused that, when he says consciousness, what he means is, I think, they do something, and they do something spontaneously. And in fact, that's bizarrely similar to what we talk about in our current model of physics, where we talk about atoms of space with these connections and rules being applied, and the rules are just doing something, that the rules just get applied. And could be that what Leibniz had in mind when he said every monad has a consciousness is just every monad spontaneously does something. And it could be very much the same kind of thing as, as every sort of every connected collection of atoms of space just does something. So that's a place where, again, this issue about sort of back projecting and interpreting things is quite hard because Leibniz didn't really have, he didn't have the metaphor of our modern computers where he says you apply a rule, you run a program. He didn't have that metaphor because he didn't have computers. I have to say, I was really struck when I was uh, visiting the Leibniz archive, what Leibniz uh, was sort of a, a tried a practical effort. He made a, out of brass, he made a four function mechanical calculator. And it, it spent like 30 years trying to debug the thing and get it really to work. And it was really very charming to read his essentially marketing material for this calculator about how it is, you know, it will save lots of time and so on. It's kind of like, big sheets of paper with essentially marketing blurbs for the calculator, but it wasn't ever very practical because it was just a difficult piece of engineering, particularly difficult to do carries mechanically because when you're, when you're trying to, when you have just one number that you're sort of trying to, one wheel that is representing one, one, one position in a positional number, you, as if you carry, then you've got to turn one wheel and it's got to entrain the, the, the turning of many other wheels. And that's just mechanically difficult to achieve. And you know the forces don't work out easily and so on. And Leibniz had lots of trouble with that. Um, but uh, let's see, what I, was, what I was going to say was that in sort of in the back room, at least when I visited the Leibniz archive was the, you know, the brass calculator. And I was realizing, in, in Leibniz's time, that was the only computer-like thing he had ever seen. Whereas in today's world, it's like we've got billions of computers. 
I have to say, as I was thinking about that, as I was as I was looking at that, I was thinking, what will today's? We've got billions of computers. What will that look like or sound like to somebody in the future? And I think the answer is, people will say, well, you only had billions of computers. Now everything is made of computers. You know, in in today's world, when we have materials, they are just molecules that are just set up to just sit there as molecules, so to speak, and have various chemical or physical properties or whatever. But I suspect that one of the things when we finally figured out, figure out, and I think actually I have some ideas in recent times about this, how to do molecular scale computing, it will be the case that even within those individual molecules, instead of a piece of plastic, you'll have this thing made of molecules where the molecules have essentially are programmable to do computations at the at a molecular scale. And so to Leibniz, you know, he saw one computer. In today's world, we see, I don't know, in the room I'm in right now, I don't know how many computers there are, some number of tens of computers probably. Um, the, um, in, uh, uh, in the future, my guess is that one will say sort of essentially one will, everything will be made of computers, so to speak. But in any case, the, uh, I think the original question that was asked was about math in, in ancient India. And uh, there are a few other things that I, I, I know about that, but it's a, I have to say it's a bit sketchy. So I'm, I, I probably shouldn't, uh, shouldn't volunteer the, the, the uh, sketchy things I know about that. Um, I, will, I will just say that this whole question that comes up is, you know, oh, such and such an idea. Was it actually invented by, you know, ancient Indian sage X? Or was it really invented, you know, a thousand years later by uh, somebody in Italy or something? And you might think that was easy to answer, but it's often not. It's often not in the case of Indian material because of the dating problem. Uh, it's often not because it's very hard to tell, you know, was that aphorism that was written down, was that really the essence of the idea that we now understand in this or that way or not? That's a challenging thing to figure out. And sometimes to even have any hope of figuring that out, you have to have a huge amount of context of what was the sort of ambient understanding of things in that time in India and so on. And, and again, that's a that's a challenging thing. I mean, it, it reminds me of the problem of uh, some of the things that I've done in science. People say quite often, uh, oh, that resonates with some particular area of kind of Eastern uh, thought. And that's often really challenging for me to decode, almost impossible for me to decode, because, you know, I've grown up in kind of a Western science-oriented tradition, so to speak, which has a certain way of talking about things. And when somebody says, well, you know, this is, uh, you know, they, they talk about how the world, you know, how there's a soul that is the whole universe and things like this. And that has a very, you know, has probably a very clear meaning if you've sort of grown up in this kind of culture where that's just part of what is discussed. But it's really hard to understand um, coming from, uh, sort of the the Western, I don't know, analytical tradition or something. And so I, I think that that's another thing that kind of bites one in trying to understand, you know, what was understood about, let's say, mathematics um, at some time thousands of years ago uh, in India, for example. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting question whether, for example, there could have been 
sort of big developments in mathematics that are either lost completely, like there are no written records, or developments where even they are right there, you know, in one's face type thing, but one just doesn't recognize them today. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, people will find in, uh, you know, I don't know, in the, the uh, sort of uh, various particularly Jewish writings, people will tend to find, you know, oh, there's this amazing numerological coincidence. There's this thing where this, you know, you look at these letters of this and that and the other, and, and it turns out you, you come to some conclusion. And it's really hard to tell for many of those things. What, uh, you know, is this meaningful? Is this something just coincidental? Is it sort of back projected from what we know today? What's really going on? Or is this in a, a, a kind of an intellectual framework that we just don't have anymore today? I mean, it reminds one of the general problem of sort of the interpretation of archeology. span It's like, you know, when you see these stones, what were they for? Well, if they are for something that we do today, then yes, we understand these stones were for this or that. But if they're just stones that, let's say it's an arrowhead, it's carved in a certain way, and it looks just like a modern arrowhead. We have a continuous chain of kind of development of arrowheads and we can kind of see how that worked. But if you've just got a few stones arranged in the ground and they, they go this way or that way, what was this for? You know, take something like Stonehenge in, in England, you know, it's a circle of stones. Um, and, you know, what exactly was this for? I don't know. I think there are probably progressively better theories for that. But, uh, and then there are questions like, was these, were these set of stones set up this way to align with some particular configuration of the sun at the equinox or something like this? Or were they just put that way? You know, in other words, it could be, well, they meant to align it for the equinox, but they were off by five degrees. Well, does that actually mean they aligned it for the equinox or is it just a completely random orientation which happens to be five degrees away from how it should be aligned for the equinox? And that's really hard to tell. And you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's the same kind of thing when you see, you know, if you wonder, were there any sort of lost traditions of mathematics, for example, where you see things where sort of things fit together in a certain way, but were that, was that intentional? Was that not intentional? Is that significant? It might be significant in a, in a framework that we don't have anymore. Reminds me of another example of something like that, the Pythagoreans, fifth century BC or so. Um, you know, they had a kind of this, Pythagoras had this kind of, well, probably somewhat peculiar cult-like setup, but he had, uh, he had things about numbers. Like for him, every number had a significance. You know, there was a male, female, I don't remember what all the, all the different, um, meanings for the different numbers were. And so for Pythagoras, he had this thing called the tetractis, which was the fact that one plus two plus three, uh, let's see, plus, am I getting this right? One plus three, one plus two plus three plus four is, uh, oh yeah, that is equal to 10. Right, the, that's the Pythagorean tetractus. And for Pythagoras, that was very significant because each number was sort of a, had a significance in the world at large. And so that was a statement about something about the world, which to us today just seems nuts. But at that time, there was a framework in which that made sense. 
Now, that led Pythagoras to be very interested in perfect numbers, for example, numbers which are equal to the sum of their divisors. Perfect numbers have not been particularly important in the general tradition of mathematics as it's come down to us today. Primes, on the other hand, uh, have been very important. But for whatever reason, perfect numbers have not been so important. But, but uh, Pythagoras, with a different kind of cognitive framework for the significance of numbers, perfect numbers were probably much more important than primes. So it's th this whole question about sort of how you contextualize the things you're talking about and, and what seems significant at a certain time, what does it mean, how do you deduce whether it had significance and so on. You know, I think uh, an interesting question, if you went and, you know, if you could uh, have your, your impossible to build time machine and go have a conversation with Pythagoras and, uh, uh, you know, start talking about math, it could be that, that you know, 80% of what Pythagoras would say will be math where we say we don't care, it doesn't make any sense with our current interpretation of what numbers are and so on. And only 20% might be math that has survived and that we care about in the context that we do math today. All right, long answer to that. Let's see. Uh, oh boy, all kinds of questions here. Uh, there's a question from Ark. How were modern shipping containers standardized and what are some of the advantages of optimal standardized packaging? I don't know the specific history of, of modern shipping containers. Um, it is always interesting the way that standardization happens or doesn't happen. I mean, a famous one is railway gauges. You know, if you're going to, by the time you have a railway with a certain distance between the rails, you're going to make, you know, railway cars that have their wheels that distance apart. And you definitely don't want a situation where, you know, you have part of a country with, with rails that are some distance apart and other part with rails that are a different distance apart. I mean, it's still the case. It certainly used to be the case. I don't know if it is today that in different parts of Europe where things are still, you know, land connected, so to speak, there are different gauges of railways. I think in Russia, lots of other places, I think that was the case. Um, and you literally, you'd be on a train and they'd have to, they'd have to swap out the kind of the, the wheel part of the, of the rail cars because it's going to a different gauge of railway. And that's clearly very inconvenient. And so this question of sort of how do you drive standardization, there's certain kinds of things that, that drive standardization, like the inconvenience and the expense of having to switch out different, you know, rail car kinds of things. I think um, in the case of, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, I, I think I, yeah, I remember, I remember when we were working on Wolfram Alpha, um, maybe a decade ago now, and putting in information about shipping containers, I remember uh, noting all of the, um, uh, the various different standards for the for shipping containers. I mean, the main point about shipping containers is that uh, you know, on it used to be the case that you would kind of load your cargo onto a ship, and somebody would just take the pieces of cargo and put them on the ship. And the but then people realized it's much more efficient to load everything into a container and then just take the whole container and stick it on the ship. And so modern ships you know, it's kind of, they're remarkable to see, but they're just a giant collection of container bricks all built up. And um, 
you know, when there obviously there are a bunch of ships that are having trouble getting their containers loaded and unloaded in today's specific world. But but um, in general, it's a it's a very uh, you know impressive kind of almost robotic process. The loading of you know l- unload containers from a ship, put them on train cars, you know, start them going to their destinations and so on. And I think the um, clearly one of the issues is if you're going to put containers on a ship and you want them to fit together properly, you want those containers to all be the same size because you want them to pack perfectly. I mean, it's like saying if you have a bunch of uh, e- equal rectangles, it's easy to pack the equal rectangles on the plane. But if you start having rectangles of different sizes, you're like, oh, well, we can fit this into this gap here and so on and so on and so on. And it's it's kind of like you have to do in memory allocation on a computer or something. Do things fit in this gap or not or whatever else? And it's, it's much more difficult and you don't have sort of the optimal use of the, of the space. But it's always interesting to see kind of how standardization happens and you know, occasionally there'll be sort of something where we kind of teetering on two different sides, you know, will it standardize this way or will it standardize that way? I mean, sometimes standardization is, is uh, standardization is both good for the world and bad for the world. It's good because it makes certain things more streamlined. It's bad because it means that that's the way it's going to be for the next X number of hundreds of years until there's a major disruption in the way that technology works because the cost of a change is so great. And you know there are things where things have been standardized and the standards are actually a pretty bad idea. I happen to think that about the IEEE floating point standard for arithmetic, but that's what all hardware for computers is built using and we're stuck with it for the foreseeable future because the cost of change is immense and there's a giant stack of technology that's been built on top of that. And I'm sure even for the detailed size and shape of shipping containers, I'm sure there's endless you know, port facilities that have been built very specific to that particular size. And um, uh, it's um, uh, you know, all kinds of, and so it, it becomes extremely difficult to change. Um, and and you know, I kind of wonder sometimes, you know, standards that get set, I mean, I've been involved, well, I've only been directly involved in one standard setting effort and it was horrifying. And I kind of decided from that, I'm never going to be involved in such a thing again. It was a standard for the way math is rendered on the web, MathML. Um, and, uh, you know, we, uh, it was kind of a, a, a thing where we had done a lot of work actually developing kind of methods for rendering two-dimensional math and so on. And uh, when people were interested in sort of having a standard for how to do it on the web, I said, well, you know, we've done a lot of work on this. We can contribute this. We're happy to see that be used on the web. And then it's like, well, let's be involved in a standards committee that does this. And that was just a, 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 a frustrating experience of the wrong things being concluded through pure kind of human politics, having nothing to do with the actual merits of what should be done, so to speak. And uh, I think that is probably very typical of the way certain kinds of standards get made. I mean, at other times it's kind of a de facto standard where just there is, for example, commercial success of something. And so it becomes a standard for, for some particular kind of thing. But I would say that, that in, uh, you know, standards make for efficiency, but standards also make for inflexibility. Um, well, there's a question here. I'm not sure it's completely relevant to this topic, but about, um, 
uh, math papers, including the improving the workflow for math papers, uh, as opposed to writing in LaTeX and reading PDF. You know, I would, let, let's talk a little bit about history of that, okay? So back in the day, even when I was younger, the only way people sort of presented math was they wrote it, hand wrote it. And what happened to it? Well, there are several technologies that kind of developed around that. The first technology was the, I guess, IBM Selectric typewriters, because usually you have a typewriter, you know, I had a typewriter and the typewriter, you know, I lived in England and at the time when I was using a typewriter, I was living in England and it was a standard QWERTY keyboard with, uh, you know, that typed the standard letters of the, um, uh, of the English alphabet, so to speak with a few little hacks on it. Like for example, my typewriter had no one key, one digit key, because the lowercase L looked like a one. So that was the thing you typed to get a one. Um, and uh, uh, you know, various little hacks like that. But basically it was uh, the standard English alphabet. So now the question was, well, what if you wanted to type an alpha or a lambda or something like this, how would you do that? Um, the technology that developed for that, I think, developed by IBM was this notion of the sort of golf ball typewriter. So in an ordinary typewriter, right, you have, you know, you press the key and there's a lever and it, it, um, it presses, it has a, there's a long piece of metal with a, with a, with a kind of a, the, the little font character at the end of it. And that kind of hits the, through the ribbon, hits the piece of paper at the place where you're currently typing. And for those who don't know this, um, I, I think this is one going to be one of these things that's eventually lost to time. You know, the notion of a carriage return, right? That was literally the carriage in which the the um, you know the paper was held on this carriage uh, part of a typewriter, and as you typed, every letter you typed, it would move the carriage um, slightly to the to the left if you're typing in English, as um, as you as you move the letter to go further on the right of the piece of paper, and the carriage return was a lever on the side that you would, you would move the lever and that would release uh, sort of the ratchet that would allow you to move the, this whole carriage that had the paper on it uh, all the way back to the left so that you could start typing on the next line again and, and hence the carriage return concept. But, um, but so the question was with that kind of, you just got these, these big, um, uh, um, you know, all the keys are, are built into the typewriter. But then the idea was this kind of interchangeable golf ball typewriter idea, where instead of having these long metal uh, sort of prongs that had letters at the end of it, the idea was you have this sort of golf ball thing. And what would happen is the golf ball was close to the ribbon and the golf ball would turn around to a different orientation uh, to expose a particular letter and then hit the ribbon. And so that was kind of the idea of a way to, to have sort of a different presentation of letters for the typewriter. And that meant that when you were typing something that didn't just have, uh, that didn't just have um, uh, English letters in it, when you got to the Greek letters, you would, you would take, undo the latch, pull out the golf ball, put another golf ball in there, and then you'd have to remember oh, the lambda is the such and such key that you press on the, um, uh, uh, on the typewriter keyboard, but then it would be using the, the Greek letter golf ball. And so you get a Greek letter typed on, um, 
uh, on the um, um, uh, on, on the piece of paper. I do have to tell one story, which just uh, reminds me. People have some questions here about about Dick Feynman, and um, uh, back in the day when when I worked at Caltech, um, the departmental assistant, a woman named Helen Tuck, um, who uh, uh, is no longer alive, unfortunately, but um, uh, very very lively individual. Um, she was the assistant to both Dick Feynman and Marie Galman and the departmental assistant. And she would type people's papers. And when I was writing papers, uh, physics papers in the late 1970s at Caltech, uh, Helen was the person who, who typed those papers for me. And on her, you know, IBM Selectric typewriter with the golf ball thing and the Greek letters and so on. And it's kind of a funny clash of cultures because I had this paper where it was a calculation of something in QCD, and I had done the calculation a lot with computers. And so, and I had done algebraic calculations with a computer, and that meant that I had all kinds of weird numbers, you know, 342 pi cubed minus 964 or whatever. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, in this, so somehow in this, in this document, there were just a lot of nines in the document. And you know, my handwriting isn't great. It's not absolutely terrible, but it's, it's not great. But anyway, Helen typed every single nine in my document, she typed as a G. And I said to her, why did you do that? She said, well, these papers, they never have nines in them. Now, of course, now they think about it, Benford's law, which tells one the typical distribution of first, first digits and numbers, tells one that one is much more common than, than nine. There's a log distribution of, of, um, of, of numbers, typically of sort of naturally generated numbers, um, just by virtue of the fact that if you pick a number sort of independent of size, the ones that fall in the, in the early part of a, a kind of a, 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 um, a exponent of 10 reduced thing, they'll tend to be more with ones in them. But anyway, now they realize it, that this was Benford's law bytes plus the kind of culture clash of, of actually doing computations, algebraic computations with a computer caused Helen to type all my nines as, as Gs, a big nuisance that was required retyping. Of course, the big technology in those days was that um, uh, normally, you know, when I had a typewriter, I was normally, you would just have this ribbon that just had black on it. And then I was very excited at some point when I was a kid, when I got a typewriter that could have a black and red ribbon. And so you would kind of shift, there would be a sort of shift thing you could press that would cause the next letter you type to not be, uh, to not hit the black part of the ribbon, but to hit the red part of the ribbon. So you get a, a, a red letter, so to speak, on your, um, on your piece of paper. But anyway, the other big innovation was that in addition to a black ribbon, you could also have a white ribbon. In fact, you could have something where if you were had just typed a letter and it was wrong, you would backspace over that letter and then you would be able to type the white version of that letter there so that you would cover the black ink that was down on the paper with white kind of, um, it used to be called the, the brand name, at least in England, but you, you could sort of do this by hand. You would have these little sheets, it was called Tipex in British English, I don't know what it was called in, in the US, where you would um, take one of these little pieces of kind of white stuff and you would, uh, it's kind of a, a white 
a piece of paper which had sort of white, um, uh, essentially white dye on one side, and you would put that in your typewriter uh, where the um, uh, where the where the key would hit, um, and then instead of it would hit through the black ribbon, it would hit this white thing, which would then put white onto your piece of paper. But it became, it also, there started to be typewriters that would actually have white ribbons in them. So you could do that correction directly without having to get out your little sheet of Tipex or whatever and put it in the typewriter. In any case, the, um, I mean, the other technology, you know, if I look at manuscripts of papers that I wrote back in those days, the, the technologies that I used tended to be a lot of Scotch tape a lot of uh, these sort of Avery label type things and a certain amount of whiteout of where you would get this kind of white paint-like stuff and, and sort of, uh, you know, white out what you've written. But mostly the, a lot of papers in today's world, I, I you know, I'll, I'll, I'll type something and then I'll backspace across it and, you know, that, that's, and it's gone. Um, actually, I tend to try and store bigger pieces that I wrote in some outtakes uh, file and so on, but but in any case, just in case I need to go back to them, although they're always they always have change control and all kinds of other stuff in the in modern times. But um, in ancient times, when I would write some manuscript, I would end up with more and more and more layers as I would take you know some sentence. Oh, I don't like that sentence. I write it out again. I stick the piece of paper on top of the previous one and so on. So I suspect there are. Um, it's kind of like. Um, uh, in ancient manuscripts, you often find things where people have written over and written over and written over something. I'm sure there are early drafts of papers of mine that are that are now sort of under the scotch tape, so to speak, um, from uh, these kind of rather thick often uh, manuscripts. Oh, and then, then the other thing, that's right. The other thing I did when they got too thick, I photocopied them. And then, I, then they would be a, a single sheet again. Okay, anyway, we're talking about math typesetting. Well, what happened when you would write a paper you would, uh, uh, you would eventually, um, you would get it typed and then you would send it into a journal. And in those days, there was real work to be done by journals because they had to actually take that typewritten thing and instead of just having camera-ready copy and just photographing it or you know, rendering it on a, on a photo typesetter or something, um, instead of that, or just uh, they, would, they would have to actually typeset the, um, the paper, which means they actually have to get uh, some kind of, well, in, the, in really ancient times, it was with individual pieces of lead type, but then it became photolithography where they would have to take one of these machines that specifies you know, uh, how you uh, uh, lay out type and so on and take what, you had, what was in your typed written version of your paper. So it went from manuscript to typescript and then to actual printed versions. Well, how was that actually done? Well, there were folks who were typesetters who worked for journals and who got very expert at taking those things that people had, had typed with a typewriter and maybe added little by hand uh, you know, pieces to them. And uh, then, you know what? I'm trying to think when, when I first wrote papers, I'm wondering whether I actually hand wrote the formulas when I sent them into journals. I kind of think I might have done. Um, but in any case, so the, the typesetters at journals had to actually decode all of that stuff and turn it into nice type things. Now, one thing that's interesting is that people who did that kind of typesetting were not, they were craftspeople of artisans who were typesetters. They were not 
math experts particularly. And so it's, it's rather charming that the, the names of sort of the math characters end up being based on what they look like. Like I remember the things called fences and a fence, like a, 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 an absolute value sign, which is just a vertical bar, you know, I think it's usually called a fence for, for um, uh, in typesetting. These were things that were described by their appearance because that's, you know, if, if you don't need to know what the math means, that's a perfectly, that's a much more effective way to know, oh, I'm seeing this in this paper. I want to pick up the, the fence to put in this place uh, to do the typesetting. So that was kind of the, the first uh, sort of big thing for the, that journals would do for, um, for typesetting. Then the big innovation was when there was computerized typesetting. And I think the first really significant system along those lines was called TROF. And it was part of the uh, early Unix operating system developed at Bell Labs. Um, and uh, there was a thing called NROF and a thing called TROF. And they both had a certain sort of description language for representing, you know, this and then a superscript and a subscript and so on and so on and so on. And TROF was, was rendered for a photo typesetting machine. So it would convert from that specification language into the raw uh, code needed for a photo typesetting machine. NROF would do an approximation based on sort of ASCII art of what that would look like as a, as a thing that was to be rendered. And, and for example, I think Unix documentation, if you look at the man pages under Linux and things like that, I'm pretty sure those are still formatted using NROF. Um, but anyway, so that was a thing. And certainly papers that I wrote uh, starting in about, when was it? Uh, probably, well, I think the, the documentation for SMP was done in TROF. So that was, um, in fact, it's an interesting question whether I have the original files from that and whether it could be converted to modern notebooks. I don't know. Any case, the, um, uh, that, that was in 1979. So by 1979, I was using TROF and I used that for a bunch of my early papers about um, cellular automata and complexity and computation and physics and so on. Um, I think I, uh, meanwhile, at that time, Don Knuth had decided as, as his, uh, Don has had this project to write his multi-volume art of computer programming was, uh, I think he, he told me recently that um, uh, uh, about some particular topic that it wasn't in his 1962 table of contents. So it wasn't going to be in the books, but he started, it's a, it's a sort of a remarkable story. He started what was going to be an eight volume series of books about sort of everything that was known in computer science started, I think in 1962. And the first volumes I think came out in like 1968. And uh, it's been kind of a lifelong project for, for Don to do this. He's, he, I think, things kind of went a little bit off the rails when he got to volume four. And I, I, you know, he's been producing these fascicles, little micro pieces of volume four. And I think it's split into four A, B, C, and so on. And then it got little fascicles of that. And it's like, a, it's not obvious that, that, the, um, that the end is not receding faster than things are getting written. But um, hopefully the, um, uh, he'll, it'll be um, uh, in his lifetime, he'll, he'll get the whole thing written. It's a, it's a, very remarkable work of scholarship. Um, 
and uh, he and I do share a lot of interest in in sort of the history of ideas and um, uh, um, and um, uh, and those kinds of things. But um, in in as well as well as a bunch of content about about um, uh, about science and one thing. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's an amusing fact that these things in term rewriting systems, this Knuth-Bendix completion procedure and other features of term rewriting systems, which Don Knuth studied as a matter of theoretical computer science have become deeply relevant in our physics project to many very practical things. But I digress. In, in the effort to typeset his auto computer programming, Don got frustrated with existing systems and so did what many of us do in those kinds of situations and decided to build his own and develop tech, as well as a thing called Metafont, which is a font design system. Um, and that has become very widely used. And um, I have to say, when we were first, uh, back 33 years ago now, when we were first releasing Mathematica, one of the things that we had was a tech form that would convert, which still exists in Wolfram language today, which will convert a, um, a mathematical expression into tech. And Don had at the time, said, you know, tech is, is small enough and clean enough, there are no bugs in tech. And he had this kind of, I think, exponentially increasing bug bounty he was paying out. And I was like, I don't think you want us to, to send you these things because as soon as we started machine generating tech, there were boatloads of bugs because the tech interpreter had never seen machine generated tech. It had only seen tech written by humans. But anyway, the, the thing that... Um, uh, that sort of became, tech became a standard for kind of, if you know what the math is supposed to look like, here's how you can say what it should be. A different problem is, what if the math is supposed to mean something? What about if, the, if that x superscript two is supposed to mean x squared? What's the relationship between meaningful math and appearance math? And sometimes there might be two things that mean the same thing, but look different, two things that look different that mean the same thing and so on. Um, the, the, uh, uh, and the, the question is, is there sort of a, a way, uh, can you make math that both sort of looks like traditional math and uh, means the thing you expect it to mean? So in the mid 1990s, uh, we did a lot of work on that in version three of, of Mathematica to build kind of a, a two-dimensional uh, typesetting system where you can both enter the input in a way that is two-dimensional and have it mean something. And so what we ended up with was a kind of a, a, a two, two branches. We ended up with what we call standard form and what we call traditional form. And standard form is something which has the general appearance of math with subscripts and superscripts and built-up fractions and matrices that are laid out in grids with parens around them and things like that. But it has the feature that Every, every element of standard form is directly parsable and mean, meaningful. In traditional computer languages, they're one-dimensional kinds of things where you just have a, a string of characters and you break them up with, you know, into, into, in a hierarchical way. But in our starting in, in version three in Wolfram language, you can have two-dimensional syntax where you are parsing the fact that it's an X superscript two and that means X squared. And there's some tricky things there. Like for example, one, one problem was when you do an integral, you have, you know, integral, okay, that's fine. The integrand, and then you say DX. What's that D? 
Is it like a traditional communal garden D that you type on a keyboard? Well, no, that's very hard to parse. It's very hard to make that uh, unambiguous. If you start having things like, you know, let's do the integral of D to the D, D, D. Well, that gets really hard to understand. And so what we invented was this thing we call differential D, which is a different character from an ordinary D. It's typed as escape DD escape in, in, in the language. Um, that is something which is then perfectly possible. You've got the integral sign, you've got the integrand, you've got the differential D, which is an operator, just like plus is an operator. And that's then a perfectly possible unit. And we had to do the same thing with imaginary I and so on. So that was, and we, we represent them as some kind of double struck version of a D. And it looks sort of visually very close to what, um, uh, what you would see in, in a sort of standard um, uh, math presentation of something, but it is uniquely possible and understandable. I was very amused actually looking at Leibniz's documents that I found, uh, oh gosh, what was it? it? Was one character that we had invented quite independently as our way of, uh, of showing that this was a meaningful character rather than just a letter. Um, and he had done the same thing, although it was lost in, in standard mathematical notation in the intervening years. But in any case, so, so we had this one branch, which is standard form, where the idea we have this one branch, which is standard form, where the idea is there may be some interpretations like the differential D and, and other kinds of things like that, but it kind of looks roughly, it has the spirit of standard two-dimensional math, but it is perfectly possible. And then we have traditional form, which is, as close as possible to what you would see in a textbook with heuristics about the ordering of polynomials and who knows what else that are sort of textbook style, but it's only, it's, it's sort of heuristically arranged that way, but it's only, but to pause it is not something you can guarantee to be able to do because there will be things there. Like if you say sine to the minus one X, does that mean an inverse sine, an arc sine, or does that mean sine to the minus one, just a thing called sine, S-I-N, that happens to be, you know, that's one over it, and that's what it means to the power minus one, and so on. So it's, it's a, a more heuristic parsing process, and we represent that in a, in a notebook by having a sort of jagged line on the cell bracket that kind of means warning, danger, um, you know, this is not so easy to interpret. But actually, this question of sort of natural math understanding, kind of like natural language understanding, how do you take sort of math that people just type that they uh, and, and understand it? Well, we do a lot of that in Wolfram Alpha um, and uh, of, of taking things where people just sort of splurt out math notation and they don't really tell you what it means. And just like they splurt out natural language and you have to kind of, you know, sort of work backwards to figure out what it means. And, and often you can do that. Um, I think uh, uh, one of the things that I found interesting, if you have a sort of math where you don't know what it means, can you typeset it? And one of the things that's interesting there is a lot of what makes math typesetting elegant or not is the precise spacing around operators. When you have a circle plus or a union or this, that, or the other, how much space is there around that operator? Are, are all the operands really squashed up around it? Or is, there, is it, does it have a lot of breathing room? Well, and another question is when you type things in, if I type A circle plus B circle times C, how does that pause? Does it pause as the B circle times C is its own sort of parenthesized unit, and then the A plus is outside that, just like standard order of operations for plus and times, or does it work differently? 
So one of the things I was curious about, this is in the mid-1990s, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, was when people use mathematical notation, like circle plus circle times, or they use more exotic co-product symbols or whatever else, um, what, what precedence do they think the operators have? In other words, do they have in their mind something which has a, um, where they are supposing that the circle times binds tighter than the circle plus and things like this. So I spent a whole bunch of time looking through all kinds of math books and so on. And mathematical logic is the area with the most exotic notation, um, at least at the time it was. I think there've been some areas of mathematics that have grown up since then that have at least equally exotic notation. Although perhaps there are areas where mathematics is kind of rapidly approaching the kind of logic or computation point. But in any case, the, um, what I found, which surprised me quite a bit, was people are remarkably consistent. Even when these operators mean utterly different things, they're remarkably consistent in thinking that the circle times uh, operator binds tighter than the circle plus operator and so on. And also that there's a strange correlation between the amount of breathing space left around operators and the tightness of their binding. So we made use of that to be able to let people type in essentially semantically meaningless stuff but syntactically plausible stuff, starting in version three of, of Wolfram language. And it's something that's, that I use with some frequency is a useful thing to be able to use something which notationally looks nice and compact because it has things like circle times in it and so on, but you can then define your own meaning for it. Okay, so that was the story of kind of making, making math meaningful, making typeset math meaningful. Um, by the way, I would say that when people were doing back to sort of manual typesetting and for papers and things, I think people used to call that penalty copy um, when they had to do math. Because you know, when you're just putting a piece of text and you're typesetting the text, you're like typing out the text and it's all appearing in a nicely organized way. But when you're dealing with math, oh, it's such a pain. You know, you've got to move things around and so on. It was called penalty copy because it was copy, as in textual material, that was like really hard to deal with. And so it was going to cost more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think sometimes when people, they probably still do this. It's what I get for not publishing in academic journals for forever and ever. I don't really know these things anymore. But it used to be the case that, that one of the models for uh, particularly professional societies was this notion of... Uh, you pay to publish your paper um, and you pay page charges and they would sometimes compute those page charges on the basis of, you know, how many lines of text versus how many lines of math. They probably still do that. I have no idea that uh, probably even though today it's all computerized um, and it doesn't really cost anything different. It's probably a, a, a you know, revenue generation uh, scheme or something. I should say back to um, uh, back to typesetting and journals. Um, the American Math Society adopted kind of tech pretty early, but um, other places were less fast to adopt some of these things. And I remember Reviews of Modern Physics, nice journal uh, from the American Physical Society, I think, um, was, uh, I wrote a big paper for that about cellular automata. That was in 1983, I guess. And it was interesting because my paper was the first one that was sent to them in TROF in electronic form for sort of automatic typesetting. And actually, in, in a way, 
uh, although it was in some ways good because I had some kind of uh, unusual, unexpected physics notation, so to speak, in that paper that probably would have had many iterations going backwards and forwards, correcting proofs if it had been done not directly in electronic form. But it did have the feature that I think it was more difficult for them to um, to like size pictures correctly in the paper and things like that, because it was presented in TROF. And I, there were many pieces of back and forth about the electronic version of that, but I was kind of the, the um, uh, I, I kind of led in this effort to make um, uh, the sort of, to deliver electronically uh, papers, at least to these physics journals. I have to say back in 1986, I started a journal called Complex Systems, which is still uh, prospering today. Um, and uh, back in those days, I, I was sort of the first journal that had where its instructions to contributors said things like, you can send this, you know, your paper to us by email through BitNet or UUNet or whatever else, or UUCP rather, um, you know, strange email addresses with exclamation marks in them and so on. Or you can send your paper to us on floppy disks and you can send it in TROF or you can send it in this, you can send it in that. And um, I think this led the then editor of Nature magazine, John Maddox, to write a little editorial called What is an Electronic Journal? Talking about my journal and being super amused by the fact that it said things like, you know, you can send a floppy disk to us and so on. It's like, that's a, that's a thing from the distant future for that time. Now, of course, the embarrassing part of this was that 25 years later, we realized we hadn't updated the instructions for contributors, maybe it wasn't as much as 25 years, but many years later, we hadn't updated the instructions for contributors for the Complex Systems Journal. So it still talked about floppy disks, even though by that time we were getting close to the moment when kids would say, when you show them a floppy disk, is that a 3D printout of the save icon? Um, and had no idea what it was. But um, in any case, that's just, uh, that's just the way that, that those things go. But you know, when we look at sort of the flow of this idea of journals and the idea of papers and math and so on, you know, the big thing that hasn't happened that I've been wanting to get to generally happen for 30 years, more than 30 years, is this idea of using notebooks and using computable, uh, uh, the, the, having uh, computational language mixed with natural language and math language in papers. And really being able to compute from papers. And what really makes that possible is our Wolfram language effort and the fact that it is a computational language, not a programming language aimed at, you know, telling a computer in detail what to do, but a computational language aimed at explaining ideas computationally. And as such, it's something that's intended for humans to read and for computers to read and a way to have the computer generate material that you get to put in your paper and so on. And I, I've been pushing for a number of years now this concept of a computational essays as a way to sort of present material where you can not only read the text in English, but you can read the computational language, you can read the math, and you can run the computational language part. And if the math is a piece that is kind of uh, done in, for example, standard form in Wolfram language, it's something that, again, you can actually have as something that you can compute with. And, and certainly the things I've been writing about our physics project and all the other things I write about, uh, we, they all have click to copy. Any picture you see, you click it, 
and it'll give you the code, the computational language code that will reproduce that picture. That is really valuable. And, and we can see that in the development of our physics project, for example, we can see how people are routinely just building on, building on, building on the things that have already been done. And that's possible because there's computational language there that one can go and just, uh, and just take and use. And it's also important that sometimes when you're explaining something, well, you could write a bunch of words and this and that and the other, you could write maybe some mathematical notation, but you can also write computational language. And that's a unique representation of sort of the computational uh, way of, of saying what you want to say. So, you know, the way I see it is the future of things like mathematical papers and so on, eventually the future will be uh, notebooks and computational notebooks and computable documents and so on, or effectively computational essays. That eventually has taken a very, very, very long time to arrive. I mean, I started thinking about those kinds of ideas probably in the early 1980s. And seriously, when we released, well, when we were going to release Mathematica, probably 1987 or so, um, really, really locked in on that idea. And, and Theo Gray was the person in our team who really developed this notebook concept originally as kind of this, uh, you know, what does it do when you match, you know, sort of word processor-like technology with, uh, computational processing, well, you end up with a notebook. And, and in fact, the, the, you know, the details of what we invented with cell groups and closed cells and all that kind of thing, that's, I mean, that's now 30, a third of a century old. Um, and and uh, that's something where, you know, the, the people have been producing um, notebook-based technical documents for a third of a century. I think the very first one that I saw produced by an outside person and published in a journal was by um, a chap, uh, a chap um, who was at that time at Apple. Um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember. Uh, maybe Malcolm Slaney, if I remember correctly. I, I'm, I apologize if I have that name wrong. Um, was um, Maybe I have that name wrong. Sorry. Um, uh, was a it was a, a notebook describing a model of the cochlea, the human cochlea. Um, you can kind of guess at that time why it might have been interesting. I don't know to to engineers at Apple, but um, uh, it was sort of the first outside notebook uh, technical paper published in some IEEE journal in paper form, and then there was a notebook version of it. Um, so, but that was a third of a century ago. And why hasn't this become more common? Well, I think it probably hasn't become more common because people think it's hard enough to get the words strung together so somebody can read them. But if we actually have to have computational language there, by golly, it's got to actually run and people can tell if it runs or not. Well, you can view that as, you know, people say, well, peer review is this amazing thing because it, you know, it, it sort of validates the, um, uh, uh, sort of something about papers. I'm not sure if it really does, but that's at least a, a view of it. Well, gosh, if you had computational language in papers, that's self-validating at some level because it's an easy sort of QA test. Does it run? Does it not run? Does it produce what the paper says it produces? There's, so there's a certain level, it's kind of like a kind of automatic 
a sort of quality control, better than peer review, but it's something where stepping up to that, I know when I write things, you know, I'm, I'm putting code in there. Sometimes I get people to help me kind of clean up the details of how it works for one reason or another. But basically I'm putting in code so that every picture that I put in a document I write has code behind it, has computational language behind it. And I know it takes a certain amount of effort to do that and make sure that it works. Yeah, the main issue for me is making sure it works standalone and doesn't have any dependencies that aren't included with it and so on. And, and, um, but it's not terribly difficult in, in, in Waltham language. It will be exceptionally difficult if you were doing that in a programming language because to get to the point where you can actually write about something that you probably care about that isn't just about programming itself, you'd have to have this whole stack of other kinds of things included, which in Waltham language are just part of the language, but otherwise you'd have to have this library and that library and, oh, are the libraries compatible? And, oh, what if the libraries were incompatible with the thing that's already on your machine? It's kind of a horrifying morass of, 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 of stuff. But with Waltham language, this kind of idea of computational language is that you can just put those kinds of things in. So what does that mean for the, the, the future of computational um, papers? Well, there should be a great future. We've been planning to start kind of a computational journal. We've been planning for like probably 20 years. We've been talking about doing this. We keep on not doing it. And part of the reason we don't do it, sometimes I'll run into CEOs of large publishing companies and things, and I'll point out, you know, that, that few billion dollars of journal publishing that you're doing, you know, you used to add a lot of value by doing things like typesetting and printing on paper and things like that. Um, you know, there's a new way to add value which is to get people to the point where they can actually publish computational papers, where they can actually have computational language code that works and so on. But I think nobody has yet really dived into doing that. That's the future of what used to be that process of typesetting and copy editing and proofreading and all those kinds of things that used to be done and used to take real work and used to be real value added by, by journal publishing. That's all gone away. It should be replaced by the effort to make computational code, computational language in, in, in papers actually work, that would be a very valuable thing, very useful for people who want to build on, to do what, what people in academic science sort of imagine is the thing one does, which is to take paper A and build on it paper B and build on that paper C. That's kind of the whole idea of sort of the academic enterprise and the chains of citations and all those kinds of things is to do that. But, but right now, we're technologically a third of a century behind because, because it is not a routine thing yet to actually use computational language, which is what would allow you to do that kind of progressive building in an efficient way. And you know, eventually that will happen. It's taken a remarkably long time. You know, it's also worth remembering or thinking a little bit about the role of, of sort of publishing and um, uh, and what kinds of things people publish. You know, the early journals were things like Proceedings of the Royal Society from the 1600s. People like Edmund Halley and so on were big in, in the introduction of, of, um, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the Royal Society and the Proceedings of the Royal Society and so on. You know, I have some, some early copies of the Proceedings of the Royal Society that some of it is written in English, some of it is in Latin, uh, it's, uh, the, the, um, uh, whichever. I think it's mostly in English, actually. The... Um, but what's interesting about it is, if you read those documents, they mostly read like blog posts today. They're kind of informal. 
They kind of explain, uh, you know, roughly what's going on. They give a little bit of, sometimes they even give a certain amount of like the natural history ones and things will give some, some kind of uh, color about, you know, I found the bird. It was, it was, you know, it was chasing a, its tail or whatever. And, it, you know, there'll be a story around it. It won't just be the pure, you know, a specimen of Latin name, Latin name was found in, uh, in a, uh, I, I don't know what the, what the appropriate Latin version of, a, of chasing its tail would be, but, you know, a very formalized version of that would be what you would see today. And a lot of papers and a lot of fields, it varies with field a bit, the conventions vary with field. But one of the things that, that is typical of academic papers today is, is not very much contextualization of why are you doing this? You know, uh, uh, sort of the, the, the sort of the joke version will be, you know, recently Smith and Jones have done X. We are going to do X plus a tiny bit. And, um, uh, you know, and then you have to go back and look at what Smith and Jones did if you want the context, and you might have to go back many, many layers to get that context. In the earlier history of this kind of thing, the early kind of journal papers, they were like, really what was happening was there was a, some meeting of the Royal Society and somebody would stand up and talk about this or that, and that would turn into a paper read to the Royal Society. And um, that would have a certain informality, which makes it a lot more readable and a lot more contextualizable. And I think it's sort of a shame that that stuff has gone away and that to be sort of academically respectable, you, uh, you know, there's an expectation that you have this very, very dry form um, that kind of loses all of the narrative that I think is super useful often in understanding what, uh, you know, what's going on. Now, I would say something I haven't seen, you know, people have asked me, we've done a lot of live streaming of uh, a lot of both scientific work and, and technological developments and so on, but particularly scientific work. And people ask me, should everybody be doing this? You know, should universities routinely be doing this? And so on. Uh, you know, I think it's an interesting possibility because one of the things that I didn't really internalize properly, but it's come up particularly at our summer schools and things like that, is people say, I want to understand, you know, you wrote such and such a thing in this document. Okay, why did you write that? Well, you know, we've exposed enough material that you really can tell. In other words, you can go and you look at the working notebook you, that's associated with that. And you can see what the, what the steps were. And then you can look at the live stream that was discussed or even the much more extreme sort of piece of personal um, uh, eccentricity, I suppose, of mine are these video work logs that I'm producing where literally I'm just sitting down to work and I set screen recording on and I'm recording everything I'm doing. I've never looked at them again, but, uh, you know, we're putting those on the web and, you know, probably the things I wrote last night, you know, I probably spent four or five hours doing something last night and, and all of that is screen recorded. And so, you know, if one ever wanted to know this particular sentence, what on earth was he talking about in that particular sentence? Well, you can go back and see what was happening, you know, where did that sentence really come from? You actually know the full provenance. And that's something that is, you know, modern technology has given us that opportunity. So that's a, another level. That's kind of the, where did it come from question? The, the computational essay, you know, that's a more, where is it going to type question? And that's the, the issue of, um, one of the things that's great about Wolfram language and, and the way one can do things is because there's sort of small fragments of computational language they're both things humans can read and you can 
contextless, contactless, contextlessly. You can just pick up that lump of orphan language, put it in a notebook, run it, it'll produce the picture you want it to produce. There's no, oh, I have to load this library and do this, that, and the other. It's just the person, just like one would expect if one had defined things properly, that one has a piece of English that would be in the introduction or something, that one could just sort of pick up and understand without knowing everything around it. So that's a, that's a long, um, uh, long description um, of, uh, I've almost lost track of what the original uh, question was. Oh yeah, it was about workflow for math papers. And I think my main comment there would be that this computational language piece is an important piece. Now I'll make one more, that, that's a general statement about scientific documents. I'll make one slightly more specific comment about math in particular. A thing that people are thinking about is the formalization of math at the level that there's sort of math one does to compute things and there's math one does to prove things. And there's in sort of the way that one thinks about math in the history of math, vastly more math has been done to compute things than has been done to prove things. The idea of math based on proof as well, Euclid had that idea back um, uh, in antiquity. Um, and the kind of let's, let's make proofs, I would say really got uh, kind of a, you know, it was happening in this, you know, even Newton modeled his Principia Mathematica after Euclid. Um, and so that was kind of a motif for presenting these, although he was mostly presenting physics there, um, but he presented some mathematics as well. But then, then this kind of idea that math is all about proof is something that is sort of a characteristic feature of pure mathematics. It's perhaps a reason why experimental mathematics has been as, as comparatively invisible as it has, is because the main kind of what you do in pure mathematics is you state a theorem and you give its proof. And the proof is kind of, there's, there's more juice to the proof than just saying, oh, I can, uh, you know, trust me, it's true type thing. In a good proof, the proof is the exposition of what's going on. Now, in modern times, we also have automated proofs. You know, a surprising thing, there are automated proofs that people do and uh, particularly they're useful for things like automated proofs of protocols and correctness of programs and things like that. But when it comes to math, a surprising fact is that I don't believe that any, uh, I believe there's only one example of an unexpected result in math that was found by automated theorem proving. And it was something that I found in the year 2000, which is this uh, minimal axiom system for Boolean algebra, which is surprising, unexpected. And I found it completely with automated theorem proving. And one feature of that proof is it's a big, long, complicated proof generated by a machine and utterly incomprehensible to people and not useful as a piece of communication. But in any case, one of the things that people are now talking about is insofar as the, the practice of pure mathematics is about the presentation of proofs, can we maybe present those proofs in, a, in more of a computational language type style as something where you can systematically build on pieces of proofs. Okay, so I think the thing that tends to get missed there is to make that useful and usable, you have to do a bunch of language design. In other words, you need to say, oh, we've got this thing and it's a graph. What does it actually mean that it's a graph? How is it actually set up? What is its notation? How does it work? That's an important piece. 
And that's a piece that is this strange art science of language design that I personally have been very involved in now for, for 40 years. And it's a very language design, you know, I, I do a bunch of things. I, you know, I think some of the things I do are quite intellectually difficult. I think the one that is the pinnacle of intellectual difficulty is language design. And, and there's a reason for that because language design is really about how do you take ideas and crispen them to the maximum extent? How do you really understand the essence of ideas in a certain way? And, that's, uh, and so language design is hard. And a big piece of what's necessary in successful formalization of proof style mathematics is language design. Um, we've started, we tried about uh, six or seven years ago, we had quite an initiative to try to get mathematicians and so on to help define that language for pure mathematics. I think in Wolfram language, we may maybe have 7,000 primitive constructs at this point. I think with another thousand to 1500, we would cover sort of all of, of standard current pure mathematics. But what those, what those thousand or 1500 primitives really should be, that's a lot of work to figure out, a lot of judgment, a lot of language design, a lot of understanding the essence of things. It's difficult stuff. Um, and we tried to kind of get that to be something that will be a thing in the mathematics community. And although we have many friends in the mathematics community, and a lot people use that technology all the time, we really, people didn't really care very much. It wasn't something where people were saying, oh, you know, we're pure mathematicians. We, we, we would really like this to, to pursue our art. And actually in recent times, as I've understood more about metamathematics and about foundations of math, and there'll be something I'll be talking about a bunch more in a few weeks, I hope, um, will be, um, uh, I've sort of understood why this is, that this drive towards axiomatization that people like Hilbert were really pushing 100 years ago or so is, is a drive in a direction of mathematics that is a different direction than what most pure mathematicians think they're doing. For most pure mathematicians, they're, they're drawing in brush strokes. The, the, the analogy that I have is the level of axiomatic mathematics of grinding through specific axioms and proofs and so on is like molecular dynamics. It's like a bunch of molecules bouncing around in a gas. The level of mathematics that's done by a working human pure mathematician is more at the level of fluid mechanics. You know, the big brush strokes, not the precise details of which where every bristle of every brush went and precisely how was it arranged. And so that's some, um, uh, in any case, but the, the concept that's arisen is this notion of not automated theorem proving where you say, here's a theorem, now go generate the proof, but more proof assistance where what you're saying is, I'm going to produce these pieces of sort of asserted to be true things in mathematics. Now let me make, sort of put together the puzzle build up the tower based on those sort of Lego pieces or something to get to the thing that I want to get to. And so this is the idea of proof assistance. And sometimes they'll have a sort of auto suggestions that might be even based on some automated theorem proving or might be based on calling Mathematica or something to say, you know, what is the, the thing that I should add next, so to speak. Um, but that's kind of an idea for how to build up kind of a formalized structure of mathematics. Um, I'm, uh, you know, is this the future of mathematics? I'm skeptical. I think that it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to do. It's been most useful in areas like protocol verification and things like that in the sort of more computational areas. There are certainly cases where, oh, you know, Tom Hales, when he was proving the Kepler conjecture, um, 
you know, people didn't believe his proof. And actually, he made quite a lot of use of our technology in his proof. And, and it did, uh, it's a surprisingly complicated proof of a, of a claim that Kepler had made that you could, that the closest packing of spheres is the standard um, packing that you see of fruit in grocery stores, so to speak. That had been never proved. And, and Tom Hales came up with a proof. But then, you know, it was a big, long paper. And the mathematics community was like, oh, we don't understand this. You know, are you sure you really got it right? And he basically said, no, I'm going to make a proof assistant. He spent a decade doing that, make a proof assistant system which can, which can actually brick by brick establish that this thing is definitively and firmly true. Um, and uh, uh, But I'm not, not sure how much, you know, what do we learn from this? You know, it's a uh, better than automated proof in the sense that it was a human constructed thing, but, and it does presumably tell some kind of story but it's a story that has been, uh, I don't know, it's, a, it, it's not a story that seems to be as useful as one might hope. So, you know, that, that's another direction for kind of the, the, uh, the sort of the future of presentation of math is this idea of the kind of formalized proof. I, I personally think that, you know, in the efforts that we've made to build Wolfram language and make it a computational language that's good for humans to read, that's a critical idea. If you really want humans to read computational stuff You've got to do the art of the thing as well to make it so that that's something that has humans can really, uh, you know, it, it, where there's sort of clarity of exposition is part of the design of the system. And I'm not sure that that's been understood yet in the case of, of kind of the proof assistant world, but I think that's a necessary piece. Whether that is the correct way to think about the foundations of mathematics, whether that's a correct way to think about kind of how progress should really be made in mathematics, that's a different question. I'll probably have more to say about that in a few weeks um, because I've been working uh, quite actively on, on, um, uh, on, on kind of metamathematics and the foundations of mathematics. All right, unfortunately, I'm really late. Um, uh, oh, there's a one question here I'm gonna address from John. How can we be sure that the software generating the proof is correct? Well, you see, the nice thing about automated proofs is you get kind of a, a proof function that is a thing where, for example, uh, in the automated proof of the uh, simplest axiom for Boolean algebra, the, um, the proof is basically a series of steps where you're substituting one expression into another expression, and you're just doing that hundreds of times, and eventually you get the result. Okay, so... It was difficult to find that series of substitutions to do. That's the art of finding the proof. That's what the automated theorem proving system does. But once you've found the series of substitutions, any old dumb machine can go and do those substitutions. So you have, typically, you can have many different, very straightforward, differently written pieces of code that just go through and just do the substitutions. And so that's the way that you would validate um, the... Uh, 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 that's the way that you validate um, the, uh, uh, the proof. And that's a straightforward thing to do. And that doesn't depend on, oh, did your automated theorem proving system, which may be a quite complicated, quite heuristic piece of code, did it hiccup at some point? doesn't matter. Because if the, if the series of substitutions it defines, you can run through those and validate that it's correct. And that's an easy thing to do. Hard to find the proof, easy to check the proof. It's actually the original, the original paper on NP completeness by Stephen Cook in 1971 was actually about proofs and was about this very point that it can be hard to make a proof, but easy to check it.
All right, I think that's that's it for today. Uh, tomorrow we have some other live streams about completely different topics. Um, and uh, look forward to um, uh, seeing you all again. Another live stream, there'll be, um, and uh, Friday is my uh, science and technology Q&A for kids and others. And then this time next week, we are alternating between history of science and technology and uh, business innovation and managing life Q&A. All right. Well, thanks for joining me for this and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.